Friend, I do encourage you to, uh, when you go home this week, um, take that song that we've just sung and meditate on it. It is a wonderful summary of the story of the gospel in our own hearts, especially verse 2 of that song. encourage you to meditate on it and let the Lord use the lyrics of the song even this week to encourage you in understanding what the gospel does in our own hearts. Well, this morning, I encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1. I'll be reading from verse 9 to 12. The book of James, chapter 1, verse 9 to 12. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chair in front of you, a black Bible. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, if you don't own an ESV Bible, we encourage you uh, to take it home with you. It's yours to take. We would love for you to have it. We are working through the book of James uh, as a congregation, uh, working through these uh, series of sermons about genuine faith. And here's the word of the Lord for us this morning as we continue our series through the book of James, chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For... When he had stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God had promised to those who love him. Amen. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking the Lord to bless the reading and preaching of his word? O oh, great God, you have revealed to us your ways. Your ways are counterintuitive to our wisdom. Your ways are not our ways. And we ask now that you would help us by your Spirit to hear well the truth that you have revealed to us in your Word. Speak to our hearts, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would refine us. We pray that you would transform us. We pray that you take over this time, control Subdue, conquer every rebellious thought in our own hearts that we might have brought to us, with us, to this gathering. We desire to submit to you. We desire to worship you. We desire to love you. We pray in this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, friends, these verses that we have just read, uh, I could have actually read from the beginning of the book just to give us context because these verses are part of of a, of a larger section right here at the beginning of the book of James, a section that began with verse 2 where James encouraged his readers to consider it all joy when going through trials of various kinds. We looked at this command more specifically last week, and, and we looked in more detail and the reason why Christians can consider this counterintuitive advice of, of considering it all joy when going through trials. Why would you do that? 
what we saw last week, is because trials produce in us perseverance if we understand how God wants to use trials in our hearts, in our lives. If we don't, we will not respond with perseverance. We will not respond with joyfulness. We will respond with bitterness. We will respond with, with anxiety. We will respond with anger. We will respond with frustration. But if we understand what God aims to do with trials in our hearts, that He has a purpose, He's using them to mature us. And the process of that maturing, trials build in us perseverance. They build in us strength. So as, as we experience and have opportunity for this perseverance to practice, we should rejoice. Not for the trial itself. We should rejoice for that which a trial produces in us. Perseverance and maturity. Friends, when we look at our trials from God's perspective, it is God who allows our trials in order to, pr- to produce in us, in our own hearts, this divine work of spiritual maturity. For this purpose, James taught us last week and, teach, and reminds us today to look at trials as a testing of faith. So, friend, don't waste the trials that God allows you to experience. But we also looked at how James encouraged us to ask God for wisdom. We need the wisdom from above, the wisdom of God to understand this life and to understand that even trials work for our good. It takes the wisdom of God to understand how God can use suffering and pain to bring something good in us. But as we ask God for this wisdom, we should ask in faith, not doubting. And as we saw last week, the doubter is not the person who has little faith. The doubter is a person who is double-minded. The person who has a double-minded or a, du- du- a double heart, a double mind. The person who wants the best of both worlds. The world of, of this earth, uh, this world of wisdom, this, the values and desires of this earth, and also the wisdom that comes from God, the wisdom that is His on His ways. The person who wants both is a doubter in the book of James. He will not receive anything from the Lord. If you ask with that kind of duplicitous heart, divided heart, don't expect anything from the Lord. Well, take that to the bank. Don't you love how honest James is? He'll just tell you, put no confidence in that kind of asking that is a double-hearted asking. On this background, James moves his discussion about genuine faith and of that singleness of heart by addressing how people respond to wealth or lack of it. We will see this in, in verses 9 through 11 in our text. And then in verse 12, James comes back explicitly to the theme of trials. So, if we were to look at the verses we just read today with the verses that were before us last week, we actually realize that verses 1 through 12 are actually one section that deals with the overall idea of of trials. So, let's look. My my title this morning is very, very creative. Genuine Trials or Genuine Faith in Trials, Part 2. Here's... Two things, two more things, if we were to look at genuine faith in trials. We saw two things last week. 
we will see two more things today. Um, here's the first one about genuine faith in trials. Genuine faith boasts in counterintuitive realities. Genuine faith boasts in counterintuitive realities. Again, last week we saw how, ge how genuine faith responds with joy. Today, we will see that genuine faith boasts. It boasts. It's excited about something and wants to say it to others. It boasts. But it boasts in realities you least expect. That are counterintuitive. So let's look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Now, who is the lowly brother? It could well refer to Christians who were poor. The Christians of the book of James, to whom James is writing, who were going through poverty. Uh, Christians who came from a low social status. If these Christians, if a majority of the Christians to whom James wrote were Jews who were thrown out of Jerusalem, possibly after the first persecution in Acts chapter, uh, in Acts chapter 8, um, so, I'm sorry, chapter 7 and 8, uh, if, if the Christians were thrown out of Jerusalem and had to go and be dispersed, and they went into these new regions, they didn't have a status, they didn't have much money, they just started life all over again, they were going through difficulty, they were they were exiled, if you will. Not, not in the Old Testament view of the exile, but they had to start life all over again. So there's no high status for these Jewish Christians, for many of them at least. So James speaks to those who uh, might be viewed by the world as low, low in power, low in importance, low in influence. They may also have been low in financial means. And by the way, should I remind you that when first century uh, world, they there was no middle class like we have today. So you were either rich or poor. You either had a lot or you had very, very little. Notice the command that James gives to Christians who were part of the low class of society. James commands them to boast. Not to wallow in their lowly circumstances. Not to become pitiful or sorrowful in their lowly status. Not to become envious of others who are higher than them. But to boast. Hmm. Boast in what? Boast in their exaltation. What exaltation? These Christians were at the bottom of the ladder in terms of this world. These Christians were at the bottom of, of influence. What exaltation? Well, James doesn't give us the specifics. He doesn't really go into the details of what exaltation he's talking about. But we can understand from all other parts of Scripture that James is referring to uh, the exaltation a believer has spiritually in Christ. The Bible reminds Christians who are considered lowly in the eyes of this world that we are actually rich in Christ. We, the, the Christians who are low in, this, in the eyes of this world have become heirs of God's inheritance. Actually, all Christians have become heirs of God's inheritance, an inheritance which God promised to all His children. 
verse 12, James will actually say that God had promised a crown of life, a crown He will give to His children. In other words, the children of God now have a new position in Christ. A new identity that's glorious. A new dignity that is honorable. A new inheritance that is heavenly and eternal. So the person who is in Christ has actually been exalted with Jesus, with Christ, in the heavenly places. So James is encouraging those who are, who are going through lowly experiences, through their lowly season of life, to boast in their exaltation. An exaltation that they can't see, at least not now, not yet. An, ex an exaltation that is theirs by faith because of their union with Christ. Well, friend, how counterintuitive this advice is. How counterintuitive this command is. Dear Christian brother and sister, if you feel you're going through a lowly season of life, or if you feel like you are at the bottom of society, of the social class, if you feel like you have very little earthly means, the gospel has great encouragement for you. If you're in Christ, you are rich. If you're in Christ, you have great honor. If you're in Christ, you have a great inheritance. Believe it and boast in it. Let your heart boast in, in the exaltation of what you have received in Christ. Don't look at your life merely through the lens of what this world deems as worthy, as valuable. If you're a student and you realize, wow, I'm starting life. I, have not, I don't have much to, to show for myself yet in, in, in terms of earthly possessions. Well, friend, boast in what you have in Christ. Boast in what you have been promised by God. But dear friend, if you consider yourself a Christian and, and you have repented of your, or of your sin, you have entrusted your life in the hands of Christ, but you don't understand your new identity that you have been given in Christ, or if you have a hard time thinking about this glorious status that God has granted you, friends, if you don't understand those, you won't be able to boast in them. You won't be able to boast in that which you don't understand you have. But do you understand that if you're in Christ, God has given you something great to boast about? And it's not what you can see with your physical eyes. It's not what this world can see. It's an exaltation that you have received in Christ. Dear Christian, realize that if you have been genuinely converted to Christ, to Christianity, you responded to the gospel, you have been united with Christ, both in His humiliation, in His death, but also in His exaltation, in His newness of life. But James addresses not only the, the lowly Christian, 
He also addresses the rich Christian. Well, at least that's what we, we can assume. Let's look at verse 10. And let the rich boast in his humiliation. And actually, it's unclear whether the rich here refers to the Christian or just to the, 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 the rich person who we don't know if he's a Christian or not. I think, and this is my opinion and the opinion of many other commentators, that it's referring to the, the Christian, the, the person who is a Christian who's, who's rich. They, God has blessed them with earthly possessions, and they were now part of God's family, spiritual family. Now, to these, James says, boast. But boast in your humiliation. Now, this is surprising. Really? Why can't the rich boast in his exaltation as well? It's amazing and interesting why God, or James says, um, by the Spirit of God, that the rich should boast in his humiliation. Now, what is the humiliation of the rich which they should boast in? Well, the first answer, there's at least two that we can, we can see in this passage. Uh, the first humiliation is, is indicated in verse 10b. Look at verse 10, the second half of verse 10. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Here, James reminds those who have been blessed by God through, through uh, material means, he reminds the rich of the transient nature of life, and James challenges the rich not to seek their boasting, not to seek their joy, not to seek their pleasure, not to seek their good mood in their riches and in the safety their riches bring. In verse 11, James gives a picture. And the picture is pretty easy to understand. It's a picture about the grass. And friends, especially here in Texas, we know how short of a life grass has, right? Just let the summer heat come. July and August, the scorching heat of the sun dries that grass in no time. Well, we think, think with that picture. James is literally giving that picture of the grass. It says in verse 11, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. And here's the conclusion James draws from this picture. So also will the rich fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Notice the conclusion and the emphasis. The rich will fade away in the midst of his pursuits just as the flower of grass fades away. What are the pursuits of the rich? Well, the danger is to continue to pursue the riches. The danger is to continue to pursue the life of, of, of richness and, and live in it and show it off and, and enjoy it and, and, and seek to find pleasure in that. And James says, if that is what you pursue, you will fade away as quickly as a flower of grass. Now, James is not saying that being rich is a sin. But when we pursue riches... We can forget how transient wealth is. So, James says, don't boast in what wealth gives. But, but boast in the opposite. Boast in how fleeting riches are, and don't set your heart in pursuing them. But have you seen people who are rich who have boasted in how fleeting riches are? It's a rare thing to see that. How hard it is these days to see 
rich people boast about their humiliation. Boast and actually say, you know what, they, they will come when I will die with my riches just as a poor man dies with his poverty. And we have just come off of a sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes that drives that, home, that point home, so I'm not going to repeat that point. But why would you boast about humiliation if you don't have to? Just not boast in anything. James says boast, but boast in humiliation. To show that what you have and what this world esteems is fleeting. It's not worth boasting and it's not worth pursuing. It is a better witness for the gospel that the rich boast in their humiliation. But there's a second way we can understand humiliation here in this passage. The word for humiliation is the same word. The word for the humiliation of the rich is the same word that James used for the low, describing the lowly brother. So the same word to describe the brother that's lowly is now used to describe the, the boasting of the, of the rich in the lowliness, in the same lowliness. Well, since James is addressing Christians who lived in churches, in local churches, in actual gatherings, that they would live life together like what we do here on a regular basis, uh, it's, it's, it's very likely that there were some, at least some, rich people in, in some of those Christian circles. The rich Christians were challenged to associate with the poor Christians and not to give up on meeting with them and not to sort of live on their own, isolated from the rest of the poor Christians. In the first century, especially, the distinctions between the social classes were so, so high that it was actually a humiliation for someone rich to live life with someone poor and treat them, be treated on an equal basis. James tells the rich not simply to put up, to put up the, with the social differences that existed between the rich and the poor, but to actually boast in the humiliation to take pride and joy in the actual hanging out with other Christian brothers and sisters, even though they were from the opposite side of society. Don't just put up with meeting together, rich and poor. Boast in the fact that you're meeting together. Rejoice in the fact that you are actually living as equals. It's true that the cross, I love how A.T. Robinson said, the cross of Christ lifts up the poor and brings down the high. It is the great lever of men. And friends, the church is a place where that leveling should be seen. Yes, some are poor. Some are rich. Some have low influence in society. Some have high influence in society. And yet, when it comes to the way we live the life of the Christian, we're actually equal. And we actually take pride and joy in living life together. Why should the rich boast in their humiliation? That's why today we should have churches, we should, I'm sorry, we should not have churches for rich people or for poor people. That's why even within a church, we should not have Sunday school classes or, or small groups based on social status. We should not have groups for lawyers or doctors or pilots or whatever status we have, we might have. 
Why should the rich boast in their humiliation? Because the gospel reminds us that the rich and the poor have a similar identity in Christ. The gospel confronts us with our own humility, with our own sin, with our own spiritual poverty, with our own spiritual bankruptcy. Also, the gospel reminds us that we have a Savior who left the riches and glories of heaven and became low. And He associated with the lowly. Even His birth, He was born not in a pottery barn for kids place, he was born in an actual barn, stable, a picture of humility and loneliness. Oh, friend, and he, was, he suffered and died. He was humiliated, humiliated to the point of being crucified and died on the cross. The word, world despised him, and yet through his willing and voluntary humiliation and death, he provided a way for rebellious sinners who are low and dead in their sins to be exalted to life. Oh, friends, this is a gospel that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to make sure you understand that the news that Christians proclaim, the news that Christians boast in, is this great news that brings the, the, the poor high and brings the, the rich low. It's this news that God in Christ brings us back to Himself. Those who have been rebellious and apart from God, those who have been rebellious in our own willful pursuit of our own ways, of trying to live life in our own mind, according to our own understanding, according to our own wisdom, even religious people, we are trying to live religiously according to our own understanding. And God says, I am providing a new and better way through Christ. He became low and poor. He, became, he said, even, even foxes may have a place where they can put their heads where the Son of Man has none. He became low and poor, died and suffered, so that we who are poor in spirit, who are broken and, and bankrupt in our sin, might be brought to the riches of Christ. Oh, dear friend, if you've never responded to this good news of the gospel, by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ for salvation, I'm going to say, would you do that today? You say, what, what, what does it take to change from this status to, the, to what Christ is giving us? It takes a heart that is willing to surrender everything. everything. And if you still hold on to something in your heart that you don't want to give to God, that you, you're afraid of, of entrusting to Him, well, friends, why would you entrust Him with, his, with your eternity if you're afraid of entrusting Him with some small details of your life? Friend, surrender. Trust in Christ. Turn to Him. Let Him take control of your life. Get out of the driver's seat of your life and let Him take over. Tell Him that. Respond in faith and repentance. And when we do that, 
God changes the destinies of our lives. The rich He brings down. The poor He lifts up. Friends, you might say, well, listen, I'm a middle-class American. I'm neither poor, neither rich. What am I supposed to do? Do both. Towards the, the rich, you might think you're poor. If you compare yourself to the rich, you might say, I don't have like what the rich, I don't have like what the rich people have. I don't have much. Friends, don't seek that much. Boast in what God and Christ has already given you. Boast in Christ. If you compare yourself with the poor, you are rich. If, you comp- if we compare ourselves with, with three quarters of the rest of the world, the middle class American society is rich in compared, comparison to everybody else who is in the, in the poor, poor class, if you will. Oh, friend, don't boast in what you have. Don't find the joy in, in, in the pursuits of, of what this world can offer. Boast in the humiliation that the gospel is bringing to you and to me and to us. That we are all bankrupt spiritually unless we come to Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, friends, turn to the Lord and respond to the gospel. In both the rich and the poor, we can find both exaltation and humiliation because of the gospel. For the sake of Christ, a poor person will exalt and will boast in his exaltation. For the sake of Christ, a rich person will boast in his humiliation. Now let's take a step back and ask, what do these two commands have to do with the larger context of trials that James develops in this chapter? Remember in verse 3, James spoke about the testing of faith which we go through whenever we experience trials, is it possible that the way we respond to wealth, whether to having it or lacking it, may actually be one of the tests of faith? Also, since James in verse 8 speaks about the double-minded person and, and the need to have a faith that comes from a singleness of heart, is it possible that James puts before us one of the threats to the singleness of heart? Namely, how we view our, our wealth or lack of it. Remember, Jesus um, re- taught his disciples and gave him a warning. He said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So we have here in verses 9 through 11, um, not a disconnected section in this chapter but actually a specific illustration of kinds of tests that we may face, the tests of faith, to see how the poor and the rich respond to wealth and how they respond to each other in the family of faith in the local church. Both of them are called to boast in something that this world cannot see, cannot understand, and cannot explain. Why a world might be surprised. Why would a rich person boast in his humiliation when he doesn't have to? Why would a rich, a poor person boast in his exaltation when he has nothing to show for it? The world doesn't understand these responses. That's why they're counterintuitive. That's why, dear friends, both of these responses attest to the power of the gospel to change our perspective of life. Genuine faith in trials responds with counterintuitive perspectives. 
realities. And here's the second point that we see in, in, in genuine faith in trials. Genuine faith endures trials with the end of mind. The second point and the last point, genuine faith endures trials with the end in mind. James closes his initial thought, which he started in verse 2. Um, Count it all joy, he said in verse 2. There he pronounced a blessing. I'm sorry, there he, he told us a reason why we can count it all joy because of what, what trials work in us in the current time. Now, in verse 12, James pronounces a blessing on those who will endure the trial. And notice what verse 12 says. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast on the trial. For when he has stood the test of faith, he will receive the crown of life which God had promised to those who love him. Now in, chapter, in verse 12, we see the second motivation for tri enduring trials. The first motivation was for what trials does to us. It does, it works good in us. Here's the second motivation for while we should endure trials because of the eternal reward that God will give us. Why should you respond well to the trials of life? Why should you endure them well? Why not choose the path of grumbling? Why not choose a path of, of refusing? Why not choose a path of being bitter with God? Why not choose a path of turning your face away from God and, and doing life on your own apart from God? Why not all that? Here's why. Because God has prepared something to give you at the end of the trial. Not only is He working something good in you now during the trial, even though you don't see it, He also has something good prepared to give you at the end of it if you have stayed through it. If you have persevered through it. And it's a crown of life. And this crown, it's, this crown of life, is, this picture is is a picture that in antiquity athletes would get whenever they would win a, a competition. Today we give medals. Today we give trophies. Back then they would receive a crown. A crown they would put on as, as, a, signif as a, a symbol of their victory that they have completed the competition. Here J James says, God has prepared a crown of life ready to give it to all those who will endure through the trials. But James reminds us that this crown is given only to those who do endure to the end, to those who have stood the test. It's not about those who begin the test. It's about those who finish it. Oh, friend, realize that how you respond to the various tests of your faith matters. Trials are not simply here to make your life miserable. No, that's an earthly perspective. From God's perspective, Trials perfect us. Trials work good in us, but also trials have a reward at the end of it. The testing, the passing through the trials well has a reward at the end. But notice something about those who receive this crown of life. Notice to whom God gives it. Not only to those who stand through the trials of life, it's also and actually to those who love Him. Did you get that? This description gives us a great hint to the secret of how we can endure the tests of faith. 
And what should we be looking for as we go through trials? It is the love of God. At the end of the day, we endure trials because of the love we have for God. Yes, we should endure trials with a motivation to receive the crown of life. That's a good motivation. But just in case some of us might be tempted to say when, when the trial gets hard, when the pressure is too heavy to bear, to say, you know what, I don't care about that reward. Just in case someone might say, I, I, I don't need that reward. Just in case someone is willing to give up that, that thought of the reward as a, as a reason to stay through trial, hear what, Paul, what James says, the reason, the ultimate motivation why you should endure the trial is for the sake of the love of God. Because you love Him. Not because of what He will give you, but because you love Him. Endure trials because you love God. An elderly man lost his wife. And he said uh, to himself and to other believers, it must be that the Lord still has something for me to do. Else why has he left me here? And someone replied to him, he has not left you to do anything except to love him still. Of course, it's not bad for us to understand that God still, if he leaves us here on earth, he still has things for us to do. That's true. But especially after a trial, the trial of losing your spouse. And you might say, someone might say that, the, the, the surviving spouse in his old age or her old age might say, why, why live life? I'm done. And the answer, because God calls you to still love him, to love him still. The big question for us, dear friends, when we come to trials is not only will we endure the trial, but will we endure the trial while loving God still? Will we endure the trial and go through it while still holding on to the love of God? While still understanding and believing and trusting that our Father who is in heaven is a loving Father who loves us even though He allows us to go through trials Will we love God even through trials? Will we love God just as much under trials? Oh, friends, if we focus on our love for the Lord, when we don't go through trials, we, ha we are on a st stronger ground to love Him while we go through them. And if we love the Lord through our trials, He will give us the necessary strength that we will endure. So, genuine faith endures trials with the end of mind. The Lord is ready to give a great reward to those who will stand through the trial. But realize that the motivation for it is not just the reward itself. It's the love of God. I love the lyrics of the well-known hymn that we have just sung early in the service, How Firm a Foundation when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient 
shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Oh, friends, that is one of the reasons James has given us why we should endure trials. That's why we should respond with joy, as we have seen last week. That's why we should also respond with asking in faith for the wisdom of God to help us understand our lives from His perspective. And today we have seen two more ways to respond. Genuine faith boasts encounterintuitive realities, and genuine faith endures trials with the end of mind. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to understand that even when you allow trials in our hearts, they first have been vetted by the hands of a loving Father, by your hands. No matter what it is that you allow us to experience, whether it is the despair of faith, the trials of life, the pain of separation, the pain of, of, being, of seeing loss around us, oh Lord, help us to see that no trial comes to us except that which you have allowed it to come. And your hand and your heart is loving towards us. Father, help us never to doubt that or, or mistrust that. Help us to cling on to our love for you and to your love for us. And may that love guide us, fuel in us the energy we need to endure through trial. And let us look forward to the reward that you have promised to those who love you. Oh, Father, may we be a people who receive trials and go through them well in a way that commends the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, help us to, to take this perspective as we go from this place, as we de depart from this place in the week. Lord, we pray that we might be a living example of the power of the gospel, that you reverse destinies, that you reverse the circumstances of life, that you reverse the perspectives of life and fill us with a joy that endures to trials and with a love that endures to trials. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.